You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 225 by Rudolf Steiner, 12 lectures, uh, t- entitled Three Perspectives of Anthroposophy, Cultural Phenomena from the Point of View of Spiritual Science, translated by Elizabeth Marshall. This is the 12th and last lecture in this cycle. It's entitled Jakob Berma, Paracelsus, and I'm going to pronounce it this way, Swedenborg. Uh, it's properly pronounced Swedenborg or something to that effect, but I will pronou- be pronouncing it Swedenborg. Given in Dornach on the 23rd of September, 1923. Looking at the dream world, as we did yesterday, drew our attention to the fact that when we go from the world that's spread out before our senses, as the world of natural laws, into another world, these laws actually don't apply. I'd say that they stop applying gradually, little by little. In the case of dreams, we notice that on the one side they quite clearly comply up to a point with the laws of nature. But on the other side, moral and ethical considerations also play a part in the way things interact with each other. So that these relationships express something like the moral values of the dreamer. Dreams are like a gentle transition from the physical world of the senses to completely different worlds that have nothing to do with mere laws of nature. Now it's important that through the ideas and feelings that arise when we direct our soul power toward the transitions we find in dreams, we reach a human understanding of the way things interact in the world, as otherwise this all remains just a closed book. You'll soon see what I mean. Developing intellectual concepts for these things is not really the point. What's important is that we totally appreciate things, that we have a real human relationship with everything we're connected to in our lives and through the fact that we're human beings. And it's impossible to say anything or think anything about certain aspects of life, if we haven't been touched by, haven't felt something of what we spoke about yesterday concerning dreams. It all depends on this tonality of our feelings. This is why I want to add to what I said yesterday about dreams and about the curious statements of the experimental magician something directly related to the phenomena of our lives and which should really be seen as a much greater mystery than is usually the case. In connection with yesterday's lecture, we want to look from a certain perspective at those people who are usually described as somnambulists. These are people who exhibit many anomalies in their lives and even go as far as getting out of bed in the night and climbing around on the roof without falling off. Secondly, I want to talk from a certain point of view about several individuals whom we've often spoken of in a different context, Jakob Burma, Paracelsus, and a third person, Swedenborg. We can argue that people of today are quite apathetic. The kind of interests that I would call fuitonistic are very widespread. 
Really such people as the somnambulists, Jakob Burma or Swedenborg, should be like a wake-up call, as they're so different from normal members of the public. Now let's try to understand these phenomena. We start with the ordinary sleepwalkers. You'll know that in a certain way their activities are connected to the phases of the moon. Just recently, and that's one of the reasons I'm talking about it here, we've spoken of the moon's significance in the universe. I said that there were beings who were once on the earth and brought humanity primeval truth, which then gradually died away. If we go back far enough in history, we can find them. These beings withdrew to a kind of world colony in the moon and now inhabit the inside of the moon. And it's actually the case that in a coarse form a small residual group of these beings have remained on earth. At the time when these moon beings of today were still on earth as the great teachers and leaders of humanity, human beings were very different. These beings left physical phenomena behind on earth, meaning the facts of reproductive life. The facts of reproductive life in their present form didn't exist on earth at the time when these beings brought humanity primeval truth. It's similar to when you've dissolved some substance in a fluid and the fluid looks quite clean and undisturbed, but when the substance sinks to the bottom, then you see the substance is coarse and the fluid is finer than it was before. This is roughly how it is with what I'm describing here. What now exists on earth as reproductive life is coarse by comparison to what it once was. And what these beings took with them into the moon sphere had become infinitely finer and more spiritual. But they both belong together and have been differentiated out of each other. As I said when I was discussing the position of the moon in the cosmos, the influence that the moon still exerts on the earth today is such that it reflects back not just the light of the sun, but all that is in the cosmos. In the moon, therefore, we have two things. The inside of the moon, which has closed itself off, doesn't at present appear on the outside and has another task in the world, and then what the moon reflects. Now, in what concerns our physical bodies, we humans are subject to gravity, both when we move and when we're just sitting down. Gravity is always present. If our physical bodies weren't subject to it, then we wouldn't be able to assume these various positions, such as walking, standing, sitting, and so on. But, with our etheric bodies, we're not subject to gravity, but to the force of the moon. The etheric body is exposed to this force reflected back from the universe, and this draws it out. Whereas gravity pulls us down, the force of the moon draws us out into the cosmos. This moon force is active in somnambulist personalities. For a few moments the moon force overcomes gravity and these people then behave as if they only had an etheric body which follows the moon completely freely. They drag their physical bodies along with them, climb about in the most daredevil manner as only the etheric body can, and the physical absolutely can't, but it gets dragged along in those moments in time. So basically, it's an eruption of specific moon forces which takes place in these somnambulist personalities.
However, now we have to explore further, because all this takes place in the greater context of the world, which in the end consists of beings. All phenomena outside beings are just illusory. In the cosmos only beings are truly real. Truly real are the beings in the mineral realm, in the plant realm, and in the animal realm. Truly real are human beings, the angels, the archangels, and so on. They are realities. Individualized beings are realities. The rest is something that goes on between the beings. The rest is appearance and isn't reality. Therefore, when we speak of realities, then we're dealing with beings. Now, the question is, when such beings as somnambulists, who are individualized human beings, appear, how does this phenomenon fit into the cosmos as a whole? How did it come about that somnambulism exists in the universe? Now, you have to understand what I'm about to say, not in a logical, intellectual way, but more in a feeling context, as this is the appropriate logic for our subject matter. Try to fill yourself with the feeling of going beyond the world of natural laws and beyond the realm of dreams and out into completely different worlds where natural law doesn't hold anymore and where other relationships prevail. Try to really feel your way into this and then you'll become aware that you could ask, what about those people who appeared in one or another incarnation as somnambulists? What happens to them in the life before birth or after death? Now you know exactly that there are dark aspects to this condition, including a kind of mediumship, and that somnambulists are different from the average citizen. They act differently in their lives. Their behavior is different. In short, they are just different. Now, if they're different in earthly life, then if we can actually go beyond the dream realm and its impressions and into the spiritual world, we would have to ask whether they're different from other people in the world bordering the earthly one in life before birth. What are they like in that world? You see, these beings who are sleepwalkers in their earthly incarnation were extremely antagonistic in their pre-earthly existence and behaved in a hostile way toward the spiritual. If with the methods we have and which I have often described you do research into the pre-earthly life of a somnambulist, since the French course we've often spoken quite concretely about this pre-earthly life, then you would ask, what were these somnambulists like before they descended into earthly existence? And regardless of the fact that it might sound preposterous, we have to say that in their pre-earthly lives, in the spiritual world, they were materialists. Of course, people aren't materialists there in the sense that they entertain theoretical views about materialism. There we move in a world of sympathy and antipathy, and not in a world of concepts and opinions. These sleepwalkers lived in the spiritual world, but most of what they experienced in the spiritual world was disagreeable to them. Whatever they encountered in the spiritual world appeared to them in such a way that they hated it. And because of this, when they descended to earthly existence, they couldn't consolidate their astral body in the right way. When we come down to earthly life, we have to consolidate our astral body. This consolidation is adversely affected by the fact 
that these beings have continually absorbed forces of antipathy against the spiritual. Consequently, there develops this karma aligned to the cosmos, that though they have a physical body in earthly life, they have to bind themselves to this body in a way that only an astral body which hasn't been consolidated would do. Now, I've described to you how, when we descend to earth again, we pass through the moon sphere and absorb the forces of the moon. These beings have too little independence in relation to the moon forces. They're not sufficiently consolidated in themselves, and so they retain a certain affinity with the moon forces when they enter their physical bodies. The consequence is that these people are less considerate of their physical bodies than is the average citizen. They remain subject to the moon sphere, which is a kind of cosmic educational tool to help them to unlearn their hostility toward the spiritual. Thus, with these sleepwalkers, we have people who in this life are meant to learn how to break the habit of enmity toward the spiritual. By not fully taking hold of their physical bodies, they experience the spiritual on earth, whereas when they were in the spiritual world, they didn't experience the spiritual enough. The average person is firmly rooted in their physis, Today, even more so than is good for humanity, we are most firmly fixed in the physical body. But the somnambulists don't really respond to the physical body, and therefore, under certain constellations, they're subjected more to the moon forces than to those of the earth. Now, let's move on from these personalities to others such as Jacob Burma or Paracelsus, who achieved a certain greatness. Historically, you could always find such personalities, although less in modern times, but it's not so long ago that there were always what I'd like to call mini Yako Burmas. Up until a few decades ago, you'd always be able to find such little Yako Burmas. These personalities, who, if you looked at them from the outside, always stood out because they were able to see into nature more deeply than the average person. Take a typical phenomenon in the case of Jacob Burma. In his youth, there were already signs of what he would become. Take, for example, the quite typical event that while he's looking after animals with the others, he suddenly has the urge to leave the herd and the other shepherds and go up into the mountains to a certain place. Guided by instinct, he explores a particular place. There he finds a hole, an opening in the earth. He examines it and finds a treasure. It shines up at him. He's deeply affected by it, awestruck. But still he leaves it as it is and goes away. It doesn't occur to him to take anything. Later he often goes back to the place to take another look. However, the hole is no longer there, although the treasure must at least have been buried. He should really have thoroughly convinced himself that what he had seen wasn't actually of the physical world but being who he was spiritually, he never for a moment thought that he might not have seen anything. This foreshadows what later emerged as his spirituality. He could see into the essence of things, into what happens at the borders of the spheres. If you read Jacob Burma's writings with a minimum of understanding, you'll notice that this man saw salt or sulfur differently from the average chemist of his times.
Bhakti writes from a completely different level of insight. He speaks from insights which are unfamiliar even for himself, so that words sometimes don't come near expressing what he sees. The language becomes chaotic and confused, and we have to feel our way into it if we want to understand the visions of this Yako Burma. Now to show you this whole phenomenon, Yako Burma, I'd like to remind you of what I've said about the Druids. They used to dampen down the sunlight through their cromlechs, and then they looked into the ensuing shadow and saw there the spirituality that radiated from the sun. For other people, shadow is just shadow, something negative, an absence of light. But for the Druids it was something quite real. Also, the shadow was not only different according to the time of year, whether it appeared in March or October, but also according to its inner bearing, its color or tone, and also through its spiritual content. If you push back, so to speak, physical sunlight, then what the sun radiates spiritually appears right in the ensuing shadow. With Yaakov Burma, this was what happened in his whole human being. He could give himself, so to speak, a push in a certain direction. This is only a rough approximation. And then he could extinguish physical sunlight and see into the darkness. What happens when you look at something and don't follow the light, but have something like a border before you? The result is something like a mirror. But when you look, and although I'm drawing an eye here, EYE, it's not really a question of a physical eye, then there's light everywhere. This means we're seeing physical things. But if, through our own power, we extinguish this physical sunlight, then this looking into darkness appears. We don't even need a shadow. And when this looking into darkness appears, then it acts like a mirror. By doing this, Yaakov Burma could see how things are reflected in the mirror, and to his soul's eye, E-Y-E, they revealed their inner spiritual content. If he prepared himself, he could see, for example, the most everyday things, such as salt, sulfur, mercury, and so on, not as we usually see them, but their real being, and what lies behind them spiritually, reflected in the darkness. This was his special vision. He saw, reflected in the darkness, what lies spiritually behind things. He saw them in the light of the sun's force, whereby the physical effects of light and warmth were excluded. Sleepwalkers connect their will to the forces of the moon, and then when, for a few moments, they're less affected by gravity, are more affected by the moon, whereas ordinary sleepwalkers follow more the forces of the moon with their organs of will, Burma could follow the forces of the sun with his organ of cognition, and was therefore a sun person, in a sense sunstruck as opposed to moonstruck. And Yako Burma was an outstanding example of such people, human individualities who stand out from the rest of humanity through their special relationship to the spiritual, sun people. Then again, with these sun people, we have to ask, what were they like in their pre-earthly existence? Now, you see, the pre-earthly existence of such people is extremely interesting. I've often reminded you of how in early phases of human development, people could always look back to their pre-earthly existence. Something appeared in their consciousness which made this possible. They knew, 
I have descended from the spiritual worlds into the earthly world. What appeared atavistically in Jacob Burma and Paracelsus was not a personal retrospect, but more a reconnecting to our vision in the spiritual world before earthly existence. Such people relate more to the elemental spirits of nature than to what appears on the surface. They see more the spiritual beings within nature. For example, in pre-earthly existence, there is nothing like what we call sulfur on earth, however, There certainly is an elemental spirit which lies behind sulfur. We can perceive this spirit in pre-earthly existence. Yellow sulfur or any other color of sulfur, these don't exist in pre-earthly life. Even the idea of this, in quotes, sulfur, which people on earth talk about, doesn't exist there. Nothing like this earthly sulfur exists in pre-earthly life. But there is a notion of the spirit, the spiritual essence behind physical sulfur, which is of a very different nature. People like Jacob Burma and Paracelsus bring this with them. So they have the power to exclude physical sunlight, and I can't say they can see the spiritual effects of the sun because they aren't visible. Just as the light and the colors aren't visible, they push against this physical darkness with their perception, but on a spiritual level. And this then reflects or mirrors the spiritual that exists in the beings and forces of nature. Normally, people pay no attention to the ways in which such impulses appear. But in essence, if such people who show the way didn't sometimes live among us, then humanity would know little about nature. People need these inspirations for even the most abstract knowledge of nature. Other people, then, look after the work of clothing all this in reason. But actually, looking into the depths of living nature, that's what these sun people do. You see, the more the nineteenth century developed, the more difficult it became to express such things in the world. Most of you will be familiar with the biography of Jacob Burma. You'll know how he was persecuted. If he or someone like him with this special way of expressing themselves had appeared in the last third of the 19th century, they would probably have been locked away in a lunatic asylum. It would have been much worse for him than it was in his own times, even though it was difficult enough back then. At least Jacob Burma had the benefit at that time of not being maltreated with the likes of what we have to learn in school today. Education, school education, hadn't progressed as far as it has today. Now, please don't think that I want to say anything against school education, but we have to be able to assess things from another perspective. Probably not many of you grew up where the teacher was, for example, just the retired shoemaker. In such a place, the children of those times and these are the adults of today, didn't learn much in the way of knowledge as they do today. They remained much more innocent. However, what we learn in school today doesn't only cultivate, it also deadens something. Jacob Burma had the benefit of not being subjected to such an education, and so the sun person living inside him could work its way to the surface. Yes, all this is inside people, but sometimes it has to find another way out. In certain compositions from the last third of the nineteenth century, 
I could show you how people who, because they'd gone through the school education system of that time and therefore couldn't speak like Jakob Burma, expressed all this in musical compositions. There's a basic tone, a prevailing mood similar to that in the writings of Jakob Burma. At some point it breaks through, especially in music, but not in what is generally acclaimed. Don't think I mean a piece of Wagner's or even title Hansel und and Gretel when talking about these things. I'd have to name some completely different pieces. But there are such musical achievements where something breaks through. And as I've said, it's precisely things like this which are important for earthly life. Now we can look at the third type of person who is so well represented by Swedenborg. If we only look at the surface, Swedenborg seems very idiosyncratic. He made his way successfully until the middle of his life. In his forties, he was recognized as a great scholar of his time and had studied all branches of contemporary science comprehensively. Many of his works have been published. However, there are an enormous number of writings about the science of the day, which only existed until recently in manuscript form. Now a scholarly Swedish society has taken on the task of publishing these works of Swedenborg, which were written in his forties on the prevailing scientific themes. But then Swedenborg changes, and people start to say that he's gone mad. He's gone completely mad. His works are being published as written by one of the great scholars of the age, and not just the efforts of one colleague, but those of a whole academy of colleagues are needed to master the task of making the Swedenborg that existed up until his forties available to the general public. And the later Swedenborg is of no interest at all. However, it's significant that Swedenborg lived the life of a scholar of his times up until a certain age, and then a certain spiritual vision broke through. Such a spiritual vision as Swedenborg experienced has its special characteristics. It's as follows. Normally, if you imagine a person and look at their brain, then in a certain sense the etheric body fills out the brain. What I'm drawing here in red, image unavailable, is the physical brain. The etheric body fills out the physical brain and projects out a little bit. Now, up until his forties, Swedenborg had developed his etheric body and his brain, his head constitution, in the normal, I could say, bourgeois way. Then, however, a force overwhelmed him, which pulled the etheric body tighter, of course not beneath the skin, but pulled it so tightly together that it became denser and more independent of the brain while he still remained as clever. Because it's not true that he became a foolish man, he was just as intelligent as before. When someone walks in their sleep, then their astral body is subject to the influence of the moon. Often their organs of will are attuned to the lunar forces. And someone like Jakob Burma has directed their powers of cognition toward the forces of the sun, pushing back the physical effects of the sun. But with Swedenborg, who had this tightening of the etheric body, it is the force of Saturn at work. It is that force of Saturn which I recently described as cosmic, in which lies something akin 
to the whole inwardness of our planetary system. So that we can say that Saturn contains the forces of memory of our whole solar system. And what passed over to Swedenborg were these forces of Saturn, this inwardness of the whole planetary system. This was why he could see things in the visions he described. He saw angels, archangels, and processes going on between angels and archangels, just as he describes them. But what was all this really? Where had he landed through this tightening of the head part of the etheric body? He didn't really gain access to processes among the hierarchies. You have to imagine what he saw in the following way. If the earth is here, then we can draw the etheric sphere of the earth. This goes out into the cosmic expanses about which I told you yesterday. And we arrive at the Orion Nebula and so on, which has its own laws, not natural laws, but laws as they are in dreams. Only when space ends would we arrive at the life of the hierarchies. Swedenborg couldn't see into that with his visionary gift, but all those processes which take place beyond the etheric sphere are not only reflected in the ether, they also evoke actual image processes in the ether. So when something happens up among the hierarchies, which we would have to describe quite differently, it has an effect on the ether sphere of the earth, so that the etheric forms act upon the ether of the earth. Forms are working around us, which are not the actual angels, but forms created from the ether, which then transform their actions so that humans can understand them. Swedenborg could see these actual reflections, as we can call them, of the higher hierarchies in the earth's ether. Thus he didn't actually see what the angels did, but he saw what becomes visible when their deeds are reflected in the earth's ether in the human sphere. The deeds of the angels up there can directly work on earthly human beings, but these actual reflections affect humanity. The etheric reflections circulate among human beings and work on them. This is what Swedenborg noticed and could see in the ether. Whereas with moonstruck people we're prompted to look at their pre-earthly existence, and with Jakob Burma or Paracelsus at their earthly lives, with someone like Swedenborg it's his existence after death. His earthly life only makes sense when we look at his existence after death, for it's such people especially who after death are able to teach others, who have also passed through the gates of death and to explain many things which in the higher worlds would otherwise remain unintelligible to someone who hasn't acquired any knowledge of the spiritual world during their earthly life. It's part of the general spiritual world plan that human personalities such as Swedenborg are initiated into these reflections, the mirror images of the processes of the higher hierarchies, so that they are well prepared for life after death, where they will need it. Whereas the earthly existence of the somnambulists is akin to a reform school with regard to the spiritual worlds, the life of someone like Swedenborg has the character of a preparation for what they will have to achieve after death. So we can say that human beings are diverse in their individualities, and those who are at the extremes 
show us how we can only understand humans when we not only study their relationship to their earthly environment, but when we realize that in every moment of their lives here on earth, people also have a relationship to the spiritual world. All that happens to people here in their earthly lives, especially to people like Burma and the others, who have such unusual experiences, is related to pre-earthly existence, to the spirit that also lives in earthly existence, or to life after death. We only notice clearly, in the case of sleepwalkers, or of someone like Jakob Burma or Swedenborg, something that is true up to a point for all human beings, the orientation of earthly life toward pre-earthly or post-earthly spiritual existence, or toward the spiritual during earthly life. In particular, it's those beings who act in the cosmos, as I've described here, the moon beings, the sun beings, and the Saturn beings, who need the powers which such special people have for their activities. Then we can begin to discern a new perspective, which I just want to mention in conclusion. What this opens up is something I want to talk about in the next lecture here. In this perspective, we have to consider that the human interior, even the physical interior inside the skin, is actually quite different from the rest of what we call the cosmos. Just to describe this roughly, if we have the earth here, then mineral, vegetable, animal, and physical human processes, and so on, take place on it. Things happen that we can perceive with our senses and understand with our minds. Here are the human beings on the earth. But on the inside of human beings, there is also a whole world that's not the same as the outside world. I could, for example, sketch human beings, but only their insides. What happens inside humans is here in red, and the white all around is the natural world we can see with our senses and so on. Now, we can make an abstraction. Just imagine I'm deleting all these natural forces and just leaving the red. This means I'm deleting everything except the human interior. Now, imagine that here on Earth I'd remove first all the minerals, then all the plants, all the animals, and everything else that was in some way a force of nature. And then not only all the skin, so that the physical skin has gone, but all the physical matter that humans have in them. I take all that away. But still there's something left of the earthly sphere, the divine forces. We'd still have the hierarchies, the angels, archangels, and so on. In reality, we would have taken away the earth but retained the heavens. Now, if you follow this idea, then you'll find a way to position the human interior in relation to the spiritual, supersensible world so that you can imagine, in a more comprehensive way, where the heavens are. They are actually inside human beings, in what is left after we've taken all that away, as I've just said. Now, if we describe, as I did today, people like the somnambulists, Jakob Burma or Swedenborg, what are we really talking about? Then we're not standing on the earth, but are standing in the cosmos. That's what's needed in our times, that we don't just talk about human beings in general terms, as they did in the last few centuries, as if they were only a conglomeration of external natural forces and effects. 
Today we have to pay attention to what's left over if we take all that away. I don't want to repeat that gruesome description, but what is left over after we've taken away everything else and just left the inside of the human being? Then we'd be left with the spiritual world, not only in an abstract, pantheistic way, but with the concrete spiritual world of supersensible beings. They dwell in human beings. We humans have to become aware again of the fact that the human body is the dwelling place of the gods. Only when this has become a part of our contemporary consciousness will it be the necessary impulse for the rise of civilization instead of its decline. This is a truth that I could express from many different perspectives. Today I did so by relating it to what I said yesterday about dreams and earlier about abnormal soul states. The end of lecture 12 and the end of the book, Three Perspectives of Anthroposophy, 12 Lectures by Rudolf Steiner, Collected Works, Volume 225.